Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode of Hey Amarillo is supported by Texas Tech Physicians Obstetrics and Gynecology, which has just brought its expert-driven care to Canyon. This brand new Canyon Clinic, right across 4th from the first United Bank Center at WT, includes six comfortable patient rooms and provides care for patients in all stages of life. Services include annual checkups, menopause management, contraceptive counseling, prenatal care, and more. All from the most experienced obstetric and gynecologic specialists in the region. Call 806-414-9944 to schedule your appointment today. That's 806-414-9944. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Amarillo National Bank online at anb.com and to the specialty floral shop Avant Garden online at avantgardenamarillo.com. You can read the free e-edition of Brick and Elm's latest issue at brickandelm.com. Today's guest is Tony Foster, the Executive Director at Amarillo Area Mental Health Consumers, an organization most people know as the Agape Center. Tony has a lengthy history in mental health work. He's written a number of articles on recovery and mental health stigma, which have been published in prominent psychology journals. But he's also struggled with his own mental health. In fact, not long after getting his master's degree in educational counseling, Tony ended up homeless here in Amarillo. And we talk about that story. Today, he leads the organization, Agape Center, that helped him get back on track through free programs, support groups, and classes. And just as a PSA and trigger warning, we discuss sensitive mental health topics in this episode. So here's Tony Foster. Tony Foster, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, an honor to have you. I'm eager to hear more about your nonprofit and, and the different work you're doing in the mental health community. But I, I want to start the way I do with all my guests and just ask how you ended up in this area. So what brought you to Amarillo in the first place? Well, basically family. Uh, my mother lived here and my grandmother, before she passed, lived here. Back in 2003, I was attending college at Sol Ross State University in Alpine, Texas. Okay. Texas Which is pretty far away from here. Yeah, and I just wanted to be closer to family. You know, the Panhandle, I have roots here. I grew up in Dumas part of the time, so just wanted to be back home, okay. basically. So did your time in uh, Dumas, did you spend like your entire childhood there or were you kind of uh, in and out? From elementary school to junior high, I was there. Uh, My dad was a Marine and so we traveled along the East Coast, but somehow or another we ended up in Dumas when he finished his military service. Okay. Where did you end up going to high school? Uh, I went to Odessa Permian High School. All right. You know, so I've... Spent most of my life, you know, adult and childhood in Texas. So, well, if, if you attended Sol Ross, tell me about that process. Like, did you go to college with the intent of getting into a, a certain career or going a, a particular direction? That's kind of funny. Um, I've always had uh, an uh, affinity for math and a good head for math. Mm-hmm. And my first thought when I started college was to uh, go into accounting you know, in finance. Uh, but 
I took my first psychology class. I remember the professor to this day, Dr. J. Downing, and I took an intro to psychology class and I was hooked. Hmm. Uh, so it didn't start out, you know, me going down the path of psychology. It started out with mathematics. But did you, I mean, did you change your major at that I point? I sure to did. Psychology? I sure did. I can say this because, uh, you know, I was an English major. My son is a, a psychology major right now. It's it's one of those degrees that is so broad. Like you can, you know, you get an accounting degree, you might end up as an accountant. You get a psychology degree and you could end up doing any number of things. And so yeah. what did you think, you know, as, as you're pursuing that degree? Like, did you have a plan? Did you want to go a, a particular direction? I did. I, I leaned in towards mental health and counseling therapy. That's where I wanted to head, you know, and uh, a lot of that was based on my own personal issues and issues with my family. And just, you know, I, I'd always had a, a curiosity about um, psychology, abnormal psychology, social psychology, mm-hmm. you know, as you mentioned, it's very broad, but um, definitely wanted to go down the path of a counselor. Okay. So what did you do after uh, graduating from college? Uh, I came down here to Amarillo, Texas, and then uh, I found a job working at Texas Panhandle Centers. Okay. And I started out as a social worker, and I worked with individuals that had autism, delayed intellectual development disorders, and things like that, and just assisted them in trying to find resources, therapy, and help, such as those kind of things. Was that kind of work on your radar? Like, did you find yourself drawn to, um, you know, working with people who are on the autism spectrum or, or dealing in that that sort of specialty? Or was it just, I want to find a job where I can help people, you know, in, in this space and, and kind of went that direction? It was more the way you said it. I mean, just trying to get my feet wet okay. and, and get into the field. Um, but after I became involved in that that career in that line of work doing social work for them it did inspire me a lot and i was involved in special olympics and a whole bunch of other things you know a whole bunch of other projects for them but uh i became very interested you know in working with that population right what is it about that population that that kind of captured you that that took you from well i just will take a job where i can help people to really investing in it just the heart that a lot of a lot of them had. It just seemed like they were. There seems to be a, a sense of. I know this is going to sound weird, but purity mm-hmm. to to these folks. Satisfied with just the simple things in life, you know, um, and and happy with with those kind of things. Okay, how long did that work last at Texas Panhandle Centers? Uh, about a year. Okay. And then what did you do after that point? I struggled a little bit after that. You know, I spent some time. I was, uh, this is going to, I'm just going to open up here. I spent some time uh, homeless because I had grappled with mental illness myself. Uh, Ended up with major depression. Um, I had a lot of suicidal thoughts and uh, it took me a while to get back on my feet. And that's when actually I, found the Agape Center. You know, I came in just as a member. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what happened after 
that point. And then there's more to it. Well, how long did that, that period last for you? The homelessness. The, and, the rough period. Yeah. Is uh, that how you describe it? The rough period? Do you think <laughs> back on it that way? or? Uh, it was definitely hard. I think one of the greatest challenges of, of mental illness is sometimes you don't always feel like you're in the driver's seat. Okay. And um, I'm a guy that always likes to feel like I need to have control. And that was probably one of the first times in my life where it felt like, you know, I, I was un- unable to steer my mental health car very right. well. You almost feel like a, a spectator, like your, yeah. your life is happening without your, yeah. your involvement in it. Yeah. So, I mean, definitely it was rough. There was a lot of dark days, but also there was a lot of learning, learning about homelessness, learning about people, why, why people are out on the streets. Um, learning about myself, you know, in an internal journey of, of, of growth. It may sound a little strange, m- maybe not to some, but I, I saw it as a period of growth too, you know, a, a chance for Tony to grow and learn new things despite, you know, the sufferings. I want to take advantage of your understanding of homelessness because it's one of those things that for a lot of people – it's easy to form um, maybe a, a prejudice about it when you're on the outside. You know, you see somebody, they look, uh, they look dirty or they're, you know, staying on a street corner and they're um, panhandling or there's almost an, an othering of, of that person mm-hmm. to say that's a different kind of person from me. Mm-hmm. And having lived that, I, I, and, and you said you, you learned a lot about, you know, the homeless population. How can like educate somebody on the outside uh, about what some of those men and women are dealing with. Yeah, there's definitely a dehumanization at times and an an otherness. I think one of the things that struck me right from the beginning, because I had preconceived notions about people with homelessness. I had my own stereotypes that I grew up with, you know, whether I got them from my family or, you know, television or something else. But the first thing that struck me was, the homeless people that I saw were hard workers. Hmm. <laughs> um, there was a guy that I actually bedded next to at the Salvation Army. And I kid you not, every morning at 530 in the morning, the guy's up. He had a little kind of portable ironing board and he was ironing his Burger King shirt ready to go to work. And I had always thought that people that were homeless didn't work. And that's why they were there. And, you know, I probably had some uh, stereotypes like they were lazy, but I noticed that many of them were working and working hard, but they had issues such as mental mental illness. Some of them even had delayed intellectual development disorders. And I'm wondering, what's this guy doing out here? You know, kind of like a, a system breakdown, you know, like this guy should be in, in a home and being cared for. But he's out here at the Salvation Army. Others had addictions, obviously, but they all were such hard workers. It that really showed me a, a new vantage point on that I'd, I'd never seen before. How long were you in that position? Uh, I would say about six, seven months. This was back in two thousand three. Okay, 
uh, most of the homeless people I came across were very caring, loving. I mean, you had a few that were uh, into a lot of trouble too, you know, newly released from jail. But the the homeless population I saw here in Amarillo, they weren't just a homogenous group of people, but they were they came from all walks of life, you know, like some were, you know, had been previously incarcerated. Some were just families hitting hard times, you know, and, you know, they got off the streets pretty quick as soon as they received assistance. And um, there were some that in a strange sort of way enjoyed that life and kind of saw, you know, sleeping in the park is like camping mm-hmm. under the stars. Uh, and then you had folks that, you know, had addictions and, you know, several people, several people that had mental illness. That was rife here in Amarillo. One of the things I've heard is that Amarillo serves as as a bit of a crossroads. You know, we have I-40 coming through town and, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of traffic coming through here. Does that have an impact on the homeless community? I mean, does, does it bring people this way? Does it cause people to get stuck here? Uh, is, is there something about this area that maybe provides an environment that is conducive for, for that population? You know, it's interesting because I was thinking about this the other day. Um, I was on vacation and I went to different states uh, and I was passing through various cities whether they be California, Air Flagstaff, Arizona, you know, um, Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I didn't really notice a difference between the amount of homelessness here versus these other places. But yet I hear in Amarillo, you know, we've, we've heard in the news and other things that, you know, we have a homelessness problem here, but I didn't, I don't really notice a, a difference, you know, in fact, some areas with comparable size in Amarillo have more people that are homeless. I don't know that this place is necessarily a magnet mm-hmm. for for homelessness, but a couple of things I can give you. There are some very generous homeless organizations and churches and charities, and that could be something that keeps people here for a while until they move on, you know, but... I just don't really see it as the large problem that some other people are seeing when I look at other areas okay. of comparable size. It's it's a problem everywhere if it's a problem, yeah. then not just here. Yeah. Tell me about the Agape Center. If if it was so instrumental, you know, for for your journey, what role did it play for you? The Agape Center, I I ended up there in 2003 and as I mentioned before, I was grappling with depression and and panic disorder too, anxiety attacks and, and so forth. I want to add that to the mix. But it was a place where, for me, I was unconditionally accepted. It's not a clinic. You know, it, we don't give people medications there. We, we don't provide therapy. You can look at the Agape Center as like, if you think of the AA model, where everybody has a some kind of disorder or disability that they're dealing with and they're helping each other mm-hmm. and providing support. So it's similar to the AA model. It's just mental illness. This is the primary focus, but I think that's what captured me right off the bat is just the people there accepted me for who I was, even though I was homeless, you know, and 
and struggled struggled with major mental illness. There's a lot of stigma when it comes to mental illness, and I just didn't feel it from this core group of people that that I encountered in the organization. Tell me how they were able to kind of help you get back on track. You know, whether it's the the homelessness issue, whether it's the mental illness component, you know, probably all of those things. But you know, what was the process from that point to to sort of getting getting back, you know, that that solid foundation? I think for me especially, it, it was having a purpose. I think people need have a need to have a reason to plant their feet on the floor and wake up every day. Purpose and meaning. Uh, when I got there, they started asking me to volunteer, to be a part, to actually invest in the center, to just not be a sideline participant, you know, an armchair quarterback, but to actually get in there and throw the ball. Okay. And we still, to this day, we focus on purpose and meaning. You know, um, it's so important because if you don't have purpose, I mean, you're like a ship without a sail and just floating around. It's a bad place to be. So the process was, you know, the support. Tony, you have purpose, you know, with these kind of duties that we're asking you to do. You know, I mean, since I had a psychology background, I I started teaching there, Hmm. teaching groups, you know, so it was kind of getting me back into the routine of where I was wanting to head anyways. After a while, when I started having stability and I found my feet, I was mentoring. I was peer mentoring people and helping them. Um, and of course, you had the group, all the the peers, the mental health peers, encouraging you to go after your dreams, you know, and I'd kind of lost my dream, you know, due to mental illness. I mean, the the proverbial rug was pulled out from under me and, you know, I became disillusioned. So it kind of brought structure back into my life. And the idea that I could still have a life with the the mental health demons I'm trying to elbow out of my life, yeah. I could still have something, a quality life. What was the timeline then, you know, before you, you started to get that stability that you're talking about and then began to you know, to move further into figuring out what your purpose was going to be? I would say it was from about 2003, the summer or spring of 2003 to maybe the summer and spring of 2004 okay. that I was, I, I acquired a job again. Um, I got some help with family, which is so instrumental, hmm. you know, to have that support. Uh, my sister really helped me at that time. So I started work again, and then I worked at what was then called the SIG Stop over on 45th and Western, I believe, yeah. back in the day. I remember that that building. And it was just a part-time job. I mean, nothing special. I was making different kinds of drinks for people, root beer floats, Cokes, selling cigarettes. But it was something to get me back on track, you know. The thing about homelessness that I think would be interesting for everybody to understand is when you're in it, sometimes you learn, we we all learn habits. Well, you might learn the habit of not working sometimes. Mm -hmm. That's kind of where I fell into it. And then you have to relearn, hey, I have to get up in the morning again and go to work or go to work at this time. So 
you're changing your habits, you know, from where they were to where, you know, despite the fact that many homeless people do work, you know, there, there is still that challenge, you know, for some of us who are out there, like I wasn't working for maybe six to eight months and I had to relearn. Yeah. Going from an unstructured existence to one with the kind of structure that's necessary to hold down a job. Yes, it's a survival. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's one thing I've heard from, from people who work pretty often with the homeless community is that often you get stuck in survival mode. You're just trying to get through each day. Yeah. And like, that's, that's so dehumanizing. You do lose purpose. You lose thoughts of anything beyond that immediate need. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why it's, it's often so hard to climb out of that. True. True. You have to relearn things, relearn the culture mm-hmm. that's around you, the work culture, you know, because things are a little bit different in the homeless shelters. You know, it's, it can be a little chaotic and uh, not as structured. I mean, at least back when I was in the homeless community, um, as I understand it now, the Salvation Army Faith City Mission, they're trying to build that structure again, but it was pretty rough in 2003. Lots of fights, lots of, you know, just not a lot of decorum. I'm interested, and I think probably listeners will be too, in that, you know, you were dealing with your own mental health issues while also being someone who intended to get into the world of psychology and therapy, which means at least you had had some previous access to those tools. A lot of people struggle with mental health and they don't have the resources, uh, whether it's even just the intellectual resources to know how to deal with some of that stuff. And you did. And I wonder if that background, um, your education, like, were you able to tap into that at some point and say, okay, I know what I need to do. Now I've just got to find my way through it. Or did it take like, you know, a lot of outside assistance? I think it was a little bit of both. I mean, it took, as I mentioned before, the Agape Center, you know, the support, the family support, you know, just the encouragement. I mean, when we mention, you know, homelessness being dehumanizing and otherness and and using those kind of terms, I mean, your self-esteem can be pretty low. Yeah. we You need the outside assistance for that. But there were some things that I drew on from psychology, you know, different therapies, different uh, methods, coping mechanisms to pull from to kind of help me in my journey to recovery to a better place. So definitely, but I would say both, but I, I cannot underestimate, you know, if anybody's dealing with homelessness out there or, you know, family members have somebody who's homeless that support, they need that support. They need somebody to believe in them, you know, that they can get better. You believe in somebody enough, then they become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Tell me what you're doing now, because we're about, we're almost, you know, 20 years past that, that period in, in your yeah. life. Uh, I know you're not there at the moment now. So like, wh- what has, what has happened since then? Well, I got better and better. Uh, continued support from the Agape Center, and I acquired a job at Goodwill and worked at Goodwill for two years teaching computer class. Computers was my minor. Okay, so, so kind you of had a that weird educational background. Yeah, too. kind of a weird cocktail: psychology and computers. But that's you know that was the math side of the brain and stuff kicking in. 
So I worked there, but then I found myself drawn back to the Agape Center. And I started out there as a driver, just driving members, helping them where 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 I can, taking them back and forth to the center, taking them to different therapy groups for Texas Panhandle Centers. And then they asked more of me, you know, like um, to be involved in groups. And eventually I worked my way to center director, you know, which is somebody just providing oversight to all the center, Agape Center activities. Okay. And then I think it was probably about 2010, our executive director at the time stepped down and then I was voted in to take take that job and I've been there ever since. So right now I'm just handling all the executive duties of the Agape Center. But as you know, as a nonprofit organization, I'm wearing so many different hats. Uh, if you come over there, you're likely to see me teaching GED class or running a peer support group or um, helping out and other things. I'm not just doing all the financial work. It's just part of being in the nonprofit world. You're many tentacles in different areas. Tell me about the people that the Agape Center serves, you know, as, as it looks today. Okay. First of all, the services are free, you know, in case anybody wants to know about that. But these are individuals that have any kind of mental illness. It doesn't matter what it is. There's really no criteria restriction. Somebody has depression or PTSD or anxiety disorder, or they're just having trouble pulling their hair. Um, they can come to the center. Uh, there's not a lot of hoops to jump and we feel very fortunate, uh, that the state of Texas allows us to do that, you know, cause some places have real stringent criteria. Right. They need referrals or you need to yeah. come through a certain pathway. And Yeah. Sometimes certain diagnoses are not accepted, you know, but we accept everybody. Um, so you have people with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, various personality disorders. Many of these individuals that come have private doctors, but they're also in uh working with other clinics and agencies like Texas Panhandle Centers, which is a very good partner of ours, mm -hmm. a very helpful agency. A good majority of them are, you know, working out their recovery through various means. Some of them use medications. In fact, most of them use medications. Others are going to therapy. Um, at Agape Center, we kind of believe it's kind of the, the whole holistic kind of treatment, you know, that it, yeah, you can have medications, but, you know, there are other modalities as well. You know, there's exercise, which is a really important one for people with mental illness because mm -hmm. they kick off those endorphins that, you know, help kind of deal with that cloud of depression that hangs right. over us sometimes. You know, a lot of them are, are going to treatment. Now, you do have some new people that come in, and we have homeless people that come in sometimes, like I did, that are starting from ground zero. And we just try to help them, you know, find their footing again and get medications if that's what's needed or uh, some kind of therapies to, to help them find their feet, find their psychological footing. I know that, you know, there are a lot of nonprofits in Amarillo. There's a lot of nonprofits who are working with the homeless population, there's a lot that, that have a mental health component to it and, and that funding is always an issue. And I, I wonder, 
like like where your funding comes from? Is it primarily individual donations? Are you receiving some state compensation because of the services you offer? What does that look like? Uh, it's gotten a lot better. It used to be a lot worse, but the state of Texas through Health and Human Services, we get funding from them to provide specifically peer support services. Okay. So we get that, but we also get, you know, a lot of charitable donations from Amarillo, the community. There's been some generous, generous benefactors here uh, that might not only donate money, but donate food, you know, donate their time and effort. So it's it's kind of a combination of both that's going on. Uh, at one time, funding was pretty paltry. You know, mm-hmm. we didn't have a lot, but it's it's gotten a little better over the years. Have the clients or the people that you serve have they changed over the years? Has have you seen maybe a transformation in the kinds of people who are needing these kinds of services? Yeah, in more than one, I see I see transformations now. Uh, once again, not everybody has these dramatic transformations. Like Uh, I once was homeless. Now I'm, you know, the director of the the organization. Yeah. Yeah. But you do see, see quite a few transformations there. I've seen people go straight from homelessness to having a home to, uh, having a career, you know, and working in the community and being a contributor. Uh, we have several people that, you know, come in and maybe they didn't acquire a job or a career, but, you know, they become good artists, mm-hmm. you know, and they found purpose and meaning in that. Um, I think sometimes in society, especially U.S. society, we kind of gauge our success or our, our worth on, you know, whether you've got this, you know, wonderful job, uh, you know, three-figure job and all that stuff. We kind of gauge that as, as the the compass. That's the compass for our success. But, I mean, for, for some, especially for people with mental illness, sometimes it's the little victories. Right. You know, I mean, there may be some that, you know, a month ago they couldn't shower daily. <laughs> Things that most people take for granted. And now the following month, they are showering every day, and that is a big victory right. for them. I, so, I mean, that's back to to stepping out of that dehumanization part, mm-hmm. you know, just feeling clean for the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I have seen a lot of major transformations. But, you know, I think the one thing that I want to speak to here when we're talking about these metamorphoses is – You've got to put in the work, too. Uh, the ones that I have seen that have had the most trouble with, with transformation are the ones that really haven't put, are, are not putting in the work. They're not going to therapy. You know, they're not working on their issues, showing up to groups. And, you know, I've, I've actually seen kind of three major factors that lead to success in mental health and addiction. And I think the first one is these people go to groups nonstop. I mean, group is like their life preserver or lifeline. The second thing is they exercise like crazy. They're like warriors in the gym. (laughs) That's the second. And the third is that they just volunteer and help all the time. 
all the time. In your organization or in a variety of organizations? A variety. Okay. But these are the people that I see succeeding, you know, with their recovery. It's, it just Those are the three factors that just keep coming up. Interesting. And, I mean, there's a Hindu proverb, too, that says, you know, if you help your friend row to shore, you get there, too. So you can kind of see why the volunteerism aspect really helps out. You're you're kind of stepping away from your tornado of symptoms mm-hmm. for a moment, and you're helping somebody else out with their their problems. And that that's back to establishing some sort of purpose too. I mean, to mm-hmm. stepping out of your own problems and, and doing something fulfilling on someone else's behalf. Yeah, exactly. I, I want to close this by asking. One more question of you, and and this is a conversation I've had recently a a couple of times when you're thinking about mental health and about this area, that we may be approaching sort of a mental health crisis, that we don't have enough therapists to serve the community here. We don't have enough child psychologists to serve the community here. We don't have enough uh, organizations like yours, really, that have that focus. Is, Is that something you've seen that... That, that for the population we have, the, the mental health professional population is very low. I have been advocating for those kind of things for this area for uh, almost a decade. Mm. So, yes, yes. There, there was a time where the funding was so low. I mean, I, I want to stress that the wheels of change kind of turn slowly sometimes and it's getting better here. But there was a time where there was such a strict criteria that only certain diagnoses were accepted. At one time, you know, health and human services in Texas would only help people provide funding for people that had schizophrenia, bipolar, and depression. As I understand it now, they broadened that tent. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for the longest time, people were walking around with their mental health demons and having to fight that stuff on their own. Yeah, we we could still do better here, definitely. There's still a lot of gaps. You know, people throw, fall through the cracks. Uh, but one thing that, that I am assured of, the, the partners that I work with and the people that are, or, the organizations that are working on it, they are trying their best to deal with it, you know, and, and, and help people, you know, get get them back on their feet. But yeah, I mean, we all kind of, at least most people in the mental health community know that Texas is kind of ranked last or next to last in mental health expenditures. And and that translates to, you know, services here in Amarillo. People have to kind of fight, fight things on their own if they're not insured. Hey, Amarillo is supported this week by Mind and Child, which offers a video-based Parenting 101 course designed by two child psychologists to teach the core parenting skills every family needs, especially with kids 12 and under. As a dad of two young adults, I'm here to tell you this kind of course would have been amazing when my kids were a lot younger. Parenting 101 is ideal for families who are struggling with behavior issues, as well as just for families who are doing okay but want a tune-up. In fact, one of the developers of this course, Dr. Aaron Averett, was a guest on this podcast in May of 2022, just earlier this year. Learn more and get the course at mindandchild.com. That's mindandchild.com. This episode of Hamarello is also supported by Dr. Eddie Sauer, who practices general dentistry at Shimon Dental Group. 
Eddie has been my dentist since I was in college. He's taken care of my kids' teeth since they were little. In fact, my son Owen just went to the dentist before he left for a new semester at Texas A&M. Dr. Sauer is a national speaker on Invisalign and uses that technology to improve his patients' smiles and positioning. We're lucky to have him here in the area. Learn more by following Shimon Dental on Facebook or visit shimondental.com. That's S-H-E-M-E-N. Okay, I'm back with Tony Foster. Tony, this is part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes a 1933 Pierce Arrow 7-passenger sedan. There were very few of these in the Panhandle back in the 30s, and they were owned by the wealthiest residents of the area because it had a that vehicle had a window divider so that the chauffeur would be separated from the passengers. It was like a, a really fancy early limousine sort of focus. Um, you can see this vehicle at the museum uh, or learn more at panhandleplanes.org. Okay. The first question I want to ask is when you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, what is something that you hope for? Well, since I work in the field of mental health, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, the suffering that people have with mental illness, that we mitigate it better, that there's more services, more intervention, um, and just get out there and help these guys and gals. Have you seen an uptick? Given the environment in the last two or three years, dealing with COVID, with the isolation, with weird economy, all those different things, does that all feed into oh, people suffering more? Oh, my goodness, yes. Just the sheer isolation through the, the lockdowns that we had. Uh, we've seen uh, behaviors that we've normally haven't seen before hmm. and, and people really struggling. Uh, one thing that really ratcheted it up was... Um, addictions. Okay. So you have a lot of people with mental health issues simultaneously grappling with drug addiction as well. And we really saw an uptick of that during COVID. And we were like everybody else at the Agape Center. I mean, we, at times we were locked down and we were using Zoom and telephone and other different technologies to try to reach out to people. But there's nothing like the personal human touch and connection that like you and I are having right now, the, you know, the connection that we have just speaking face to face. Um, and that's really hard to replace over a com- computer screen. Okay. Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? I think I had to think, think a lot about this, but I think poverty, um, we really struggle, struggle with poverty around here and it's, it's not, talked about very often here. And I learned a lot about that, Jason, from just working at the Agape Center and, you know, picking people up and their homes and seeing the conditions that that were there and, you know, the different sides of town that, that I've had to go to. And, you know, I just would like to see people have a better quality of life and on those terms. And it's not always a conversation that... You know, we have very often, you you mentioned a lot of people don't understand the poverty. It's because the people living in poverty don't have the platform or don't have the voice or don't have the exposure, you know, to to get it in front of people or or to bring about even the change in their own lives. Yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's a matter of of representation or, or being able to do some of those things. Yeah. Well, that's true. What does this area not have enough of? I think 
child care, mental health assistance. You know, I think all while getting better, mm-hmm. you know, I got to give Amarillo credit. I mean, things are getting a little better. Like I said, the wheels turn slowly, you know, and especially in terms of mental health, it's just a topic that we don't like to talk a lot about, right. you know, just because it's, you know, shrouded in stigma. But uh, I think those two areas is would be something that we can improve on. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? Uh, I describe it as kind of like Prairie Plains with a marvelous canyon. All right. I'm a big fan of Paladura Canyon. Lots of flat land until the land just drops out from under you. Yeah, exactly. There you go. <laughs> this is a, a new question I've been asking lately. What's your favorite local mural? Well, I'm not sure if this exactly counts as a mural, but I would say it does. Over on the north side of town, there's a lot of graffiti art. Mm-hmm. And some guy... Uh, painted, spray painted a stormtrooper. I've seen that one. What building is that on? I'm trying to think exactly where the street is, and but, but it's just it's always been etched on my mind how how good that work was or is, you know. And it's uh, you know I've been involved with a lot of the public art efforts in Amarillo, you know, the official ones, and and sometimes the the unofficial ones, you know, whether they're you know, part of a, a larger effort or, or just somebody with spray paint. Like sometimes those are the cool ones and I, I always appreciate them Yeah, when they're, when they're artistic, you know? Yeah. What's your favorite local restaurant? Uh, I'm a big fan of Thai food. So it's Thai Erewhon. Okay. That's a solid choice and a place with a lot of Thai restaurants. That one's always good. Yeah. You have a favorite local coffee shop? Well, I wish I could say something here. I'm just not a coffee drinker. Okay. Cause I got to be straight up with you. That's that. fine. <laughs> And when you, you mentioned this just a second ago, when was the last time you visited Paladuro Canyon? Oh, I would say a month ago, but during the summer, I'm a regular. In fact, I'm, I'm a hiker. That's what I do. I hike all over Paladuro Canyon, New Mexico, Colorado. That's my purpose. You know, we okay. talked about purpose, you know, that's one of them. Do you have a favorite part of the country to hike? New Mexico and Colorado, it's kind of a, a tie. You know, I've been over there and, and uh, climbed Mount Elbert. Yep. Uh, and New Mexico, I've climbed Mount Wheeler. Been to more places than that, you know, but those areas are just beautiful. Amazing. Okay, well, Tony, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing that you would like listeners to know about or to experience? One of the things that helped my mental health and just took me to a higher level, however you want to put that, was uh, exercise itself and hiking, lifting weights, things like that. I cannot stress, you know, the importance of that in terms of mental health recovery and, uh, you know, just helping you cut through uh, those clouds of depression that, that hit. I mean, exercise is like, an antidepressant in itself. So yeah, I'm endorsing that for anybody who struggles. Problem is, is taking that first step when you're already depressed, you know, but I feel that if somebody can do that and get going, they'll, they'll reap the benefits and then it'll be self-reinforcing. I think there's a lot of people who, who maybe know they should exercise or know that it's beneficial and and there's a barrier to doing it. Like they think, well, I have to join a gym 
or I have to, you know, go hike in the canyon. I'm not sure how to get there or something like that. And I found that just like walking out my door and walking around the block is just as enjoyable to me as as lifting weights or you know being on a treadmill or or something like that. That there's yeah. a, a a fairly low barrier to entry if you don't overcomplicate it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, shoot, I was just walking over here at at John Stiff Park, you know, and just marveling at the the green grass, you mm-hmm. know, and th- that was enough for me to give me a little lift, you know, and I mean, essentially that's what it's about, especially if you've historically struggled with depression, you need that lift on a daily basis. You need that purpose. Okay. Well, Tony Foster, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Tony for the interview. You can learn more about the Agape Center at aamhc.us. Thanks also to sponsors, the Texas Tech Physicians Obstetrics and Gynecology, Mind and Child's Parenting 101 course, Shim and Dental, and of course, Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting the show. Thanks also to Angelina Marie for editing this episode. Hey Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because people listen to it. So if that's you, if you're listening to it now, I want to say thanks. I really do appreciate it. It's also supported on an ongoing basis by local people who give financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Corey Burns, Jess Heredia, Wilson Lemieux, Josh Wood, Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 270. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.